So yeah, Cole gave a very kind introduction, uh, which sounds a lot nicer than it actually was. Um, for you, maybe. Nice <laughs> <for> me. <clears throat> um, yeah, so we've been attending here at the Gather for probably about two years, and I probably got to know Cole three years ago, and we have a mutual friend that like would hear me rant and then go have lunch and hear Cole rant. He'd be like, you guys rant about the same things. You should meet each other. And we, we did, and now Cole and I spend most of our time ranting at each other about various different theological or whatever type things we can think of. So, um, I, uh, I am not a pastor or a theologian or a philosopher. Uh, all of that will become very obvious as I continue speaking here. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a community college dropout, so now that I've given all my credentials, uh, we got all the fancy stuff out of the way, we can move forward. And I was trying to think, like, if you've been here, we've had lots of different types of people speak. We have Cole, who normally speaks, and he's, he's the pastor, and he's, um, you know, I was thinking, like, when you, when you do something that's other people have done, sometimes you have a tendency to pick up kind of like their mannerisms. So I thought maybe I should like speak to you guys the way like Cole would speak to you, like really loud! <laughs> and like laughing! <laughs> sort of stuff. But like the over-the-top thing, that's not like really my thing. That's not what I do. But I thought, you know, Steve Brown has spoken. Maybe I could speak like Steve and be like, And while I have really deep insights, I don't speak very loud. Amen. <laughs> that was the quietest amen I've ever heard. And so I'm not as quiet as Stephen Frank Brown. Got it. And I thought, well, maybe I could go a little bit more, more exotic. She's not here tonight, but I thought maybe I could do like a Rita thing where I'd be like, I'd like to thank you guys for coming tonight. <laughs> and I have to stop my impression there because I end up veering off either sounding like Nacho Libre or some other very, some other very angry like Latina. So, like Rosie Perez or something. Why you got to be so stupid? And I, I really hope that last thing does not end up on the internet. So, Cole has kind of like badgered me about like doing this and speaking together, and I've, for like a, like a long time, I've held off on like doing it, because it's just, I don't feel like super comfortable with it, it's not like in my wheelhouse, and uh, um, he finally, it was like a couple months ago, a month and a half ago, he was like, hey, you should speak January 14th, and I thought, I think I might be able to do that, January 14th, it's after the holidays, right, there's nothing going on, it's just going to be the usuals here. It's going to be probably a, not so much of a crowded thing. And then, like, the Chronicle does a story. It's cold outside. It's kind of full in here. And so that didn't work out the way I kind of planned. You want to go away? Yes. <laughs> yes, I'd like you to go away. <laughs> so Gather Church. What an odd, odd church. The name is odd. Gather. Gather Church. You have to say it like that. You have to say Gather Church. Because you say it different ways, it sounds totally weird. Gather church is kind of like saying the assembly assembly, or we're the group of groups, or we, we're grouping. 
We just kind of repeat the same thing over again. But when you add like, like other people in the, the area, they'll refer to gather, it's like uh, the gather, which sounds incredibly ominous. Like we're the gather, like starting to kind of freak people out. And I try to like play that. Down. No, no, gather, sure. we're just a little church, you know, whatever. And then there's people that get it really wrong and they name it like after that magic, the card game, magic, the gathering. <laughs> like it makes it sound like a cult sort of. And I, I, like, I used to, like, try to, like, demure on that. And now I just totally embrace, like, making people think it's really weird here. People are like, oh, I'm interested in coming to The Gather. I'm like, you should come. We will see you on Saturday. It would be great to see you. Um, are you allergic to chicken blood in any way, shape, or form? <laughs> no? Great. No reason. Just, just curious. Also, don't sit in the front two rows because they're what we call the splash seats. That's messed up. We had so many technical difficulties today getting this service off the ground. Holly said, I think Cole's kind of stressed. He was up here singing. And I said, well, we've had a lot of te technical difficulties. We have one more to go. <laughs> so we're getting through it. So um, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercies that are new every day. We thank you for watching over us, for taking care of us, for providing for us. We thank you for community. We thank you for love. Now, we thank you that you mediate your ways through people that come together with all different kinds of backgrounds and experiences, and God, you show up. And we just pray that uh, tonight that you would show up even given some of the deficiencies we may have here tonight. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So, this is, like I said, really uncomfortable for me. I don't mind public speaking, but I mind like speaking in churches sort of a little. Yeah, this, if everybody could just face the back wall, that'd be way, no. Um, you know, like, you hear those dreams that people have where they show up to school at work and not wearing any clothing. Like, my brain right now has no clothing. <laughs> I'm feeling very um, self-conscious. So, I'm going to introduce Luke chapter 15. Does anybody know off the top of their head what Luke chapter 15 has in it? Words. Words. Correct. Thank you, Steve. You are also <laughs> very helpful. Luke 15 has three parables in it that are usually titled... The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. Have you guys heard of these before? Some of you have been to church, you've definitely probably heard those. Some of you, they might be new names to you. And so I will read that. What I'm going to do is kind of break this into two parts, and hopefully it makes sense. I was complaining to my wife and everybody that would give me an ear that I'm having difficulty. I have all these things I want to say and all these things, that can, and I didn't know how to like make them into a coherent thought. And I'm not entirely sure that I was successful, so... Uh, bear with me, and I just pray that you can hear what I'm trying to say, even if I don't vocalize it the way I mean it. So, Luke chapter 15 <clears throat> says, All the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around Jesus to listen to him. The Pharisees and legal experts were grumbling, saying, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus told them this parable. Suppose someone 
among you had 100 sheep and lost one of them? Wouldn't he leave the other 99 in the pasture and search for the lost one until he finds it? And when he finds it, he is thrilled and he places it on his shoulders. When he arrives home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Celebrate with me because I found my lost sheep. In the same way, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who changes both heart and life than over 99 righteous people who have no need to change their hearts and lives. Or what woman, if she owns 10 silver coins and loses one of them, won't light a lamp and sweep the house, searching her home carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Celebrate with me, because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, joy breaks out in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who changes both heart and life. Jesus said, A certain man had two sons. The younger son said to the father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. Then the father divided his estate between them. Soon afterward, the younger son gathered everything together and took a trip to a land far away. There he wasted his wealth through extravagant living. When he had used up his resources, a severe food shortage arose in that country, and he began to be in need. He hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to eat his fill from what the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have more food, more than enough food? But I'm starving to death. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Take me on as one of your hired hands. So he got up and he went to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion. His father ran to him, hugged him, and kissed him. Then his son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his fingers and sandals on his feet. Fetch the fattened calf and slaughter it. We must celebrate with feasting because this son of mine was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now the older son was in the field. Coming in from the field, he approached the house and heard music and dancing. He called out. He called one of the servants and asked what was going on. The servant replied, your brother has arrived and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he received his son back safe and sound. When the older son Then the older son was furious and didn't want to enter in, but his father came out and begged him. He answered his father, Look, I've served you all these years. I've never disobeyed your instruction, yet you've never given me as much as a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours returned, after gobbling up your estate on prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Then his father said, Son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So that's chapter 15 of Luke. That's a lot of reading. I just realized as I had to do it out loud. It goes quicker in my mind. (laughs) And these parables have names that have been attached to them through just our long history of reading and studying the Bible. 
And people break them down into three parables typically, and those three are titled the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. And so I'm going to kind of detail a way of reading this that we might read because it's familiar to us or because we've read it a million times or we just go with what the title says on the tin, if you will. And then I want to talk about kind of the way that we form our world and then I want to go back and reread it again and see it through maybe slightly different lenses. So if you guys can just hang in there, uh, hopefully I can make some sense out of this. So the lost sheep. The title kind of gives it away a little bit. What's it about? Lost sheep. It's obviously about the sheep. And the math is one out of 100, right? There's, there's one missing out of 100. And like this parable didn't like have a whole lot that stood out to me when I first read it until I had kids. And if you've had kids and you've gone somewhere, I have four. I miss one or a few all the time. Like, I have no idea where they are or what they're doing. And this guy has 100 sheep, and he notices that there's one missing out of 99. That's a very observant parent. I am not that observant. One out of 100. That seems crazy, too, because, like, if I was the shepherd, I'd be like, guys... Go find your brother and tell him to come back here, (laughs) which causes some problems in our household. If it was mom, she would do the other crazy thing, which is, all right, all 99 of you, we are going to go look for your brother. And if any of you gets lost along the way, your butt is mutton, you know. (laughs) It's different parenting styles between mom and dad. But the first thing that starts this is that the sheep is lost. It says that the sheep, that the Greek behind that lost word also means to be deceived. And through lots and lots of years of, of reading this and whatever, we, we, we kind of see this in a salvific way, and it helps that, and Jesus, as he points this out, says, this is like, just like when somebody repents, and comes back, this is the type of celebration that they have. And so it starts with a search. And the search is continuous through all of the parables here. And uh, then we also kind of know how, how it ends. What's he do when he finds the sheep? He celebrates. <clears throat> he celebrates. And it's kind of funny because in the it's it's like it's like an exaggerated search, it's also kind of an exaggerated celebration. Because not only does he find this one sheep out of the 99 that he already has, he leaves the 99, so his math is kind of bad in terms of priorities. But then once he finds the sheep, he does like this exact, like he puts the, it says he puts the sheep over his shoulders. Which, as I understand it, sheep don't like to be carried over people's shoulders. But I think the idea here is the excitement and the celebration in finding that sheep and returning it. So, we see this as a sinner that goes astray. And in the, the parable Jesus ends it with, in the same way, this is how, right? In the same way I tell you, let me see, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who changes both heart and life than over 99 righteous people who have no need to change their hearts and lives. So the lost sheep seems to be a reflection of that. Jesus tells 
his audience here that that's what's going on. And then he goes into the next parable, that of the lost coin. So the lost coin is obviously about lost coin. The math's a little different. Instead of one out of 100, it's one out of 10. And I looked it up. It's drachma or something like that, or Cole probably has a better drachma or something. I don't know. Um, and it's about a day's wage. It's hard to factor for sure, but let's just say it's a day's wage. And, uh, but still, though, if you tossed 10 coins on the table, would you necessarily notice if one was missing maybe without being very judicious in how you handle it? Maybe not. Eyeballing it is not going to tell you whether there's a coin missing there or not. And then in this parable, it gets a little bit more, the search becomes a little bit more exaggerated because what does the woman do? Lights a lamp, sweet, searches like crazy for this thing. And then when she finds it, we also have celebration. You guys seeing a pattern here? Parties. <clears throat> Parties, yes. You find money, you party. Isn't that funny? Like, yeah, you ever like, Get a pair of jeans on, you find like a 20 in it. I don't. I'm married with four kids. But some people have had that happen. You get like a 20 in it, and you're like, free money. But it's not free money. It was your money you lost at some point. Psalm series. Yes. Just go straight to Psalm series. <clears throat> Jesus wraps this one up also saying that, in the same way I tell you, joy breaks out in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who changes both heart and life, who repents. So we had the lost sheep, we had the lost coin, and now we have the prodigal son. This is the, this is the, the big finale on this trifecta here. And as we've given the title, the prodigal son is obviously about the prodigal son. You guys are doing really good with this. You guys are really tracking me here. So it's obviously about the prodigal son, and there's a lot of history and backstory that goes into this, but the, the son <clears throat> starts off and he says, Father, I want my inheritance. And <clears throat> that's kind of what triggers this whole cause and effect chain that we see where the son asks for his father and, father's inheritance, the father divides the inheritance between the younger brother and the older brother. The son spends a few days. We don't know what. It doesn't say. It just says he spends a few days getting things in order. And then he takes off and he goes to a foreign land, a land far away, land out of reach of his, his father and his brother and anybody else he knows. And that's kind of a big deal. That's kind of, um, well, when you look at this, you have to wonder about all these relationships going on here. And then you also have to wonder about the son to ask for such a thing and the father to grant such a thing. And then the son goes off, and he invests it. He does very well for himself. <laughs> no, it says, <clears throat> there he wasted his wealth through extravagant living. That's what the, that's the phrase that Jesus is using when he refers to like, how he spent his wealth. It doesn't really doesn't tell you how. Later on, the older brother helps fill in some of those details, but here it just says that he wastes it. And that's what it means to be um, prodigal. It means to, to waste something that you have. 
in one sense. Cole's talked about the other sense of what it means to be prodigal with your stuff. And we will get into that. And so it says, when he had used up his resources, that's the first thing I want to point out here. So he used up his resources. He's got half of his dad's wealth, which is now his wealth, and he goes off to a foreign land, and he wastes it with extravagance. And so it leads in when he had used up his resources. The next line reads, a severe food shortage arose in that country, and he began to be in need. That's an Interesting tie-on. So now we have something that the son did all on his own, and then we had something, a circumstance crop up that contributed to that son's problems. And I'm pretty sure there's people here today that you've probably made some missteps in how you're living or whatever, and you might be at that point in your life where that other shoe could fall, something outside of your ability to fix it that could land you in a very similar spot. So I would think that we hear this and we understand how serious the situation is. It says, he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to eat his fill from what pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. I don't know what pigs eat. I am everything, yeah. But I went to a petting farm once and a deer ate my shirt. I'm assuming if it's anything like that, that the pigs will probably also eat anything. Although my... Uh, my dad, Art, uh, had pigs, and he said they're the cleanest, most respectful animal that he ever owned. So, <clears throat> But I've highlighted one part here. It, it's, he wanted to eat what the pigs were eating, which doesn't sound like the best thing in the world, but the sentence doesn't end there. It says, but no one gave him anything. Once again, we're seeing something that's kind of outside the hands of the son here. He's made his missteps, but he's also dealt with famine, and now... He doesn't seem to be able to find any charity in this foreign land that he's living in. It says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hands, hired hands, have more than enough food, but I'm starving to death. I will get up and I will go to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Take me on as one of your hired hands. So he got up and he went to his father. And so while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion. His father ran to hug him, or ran to him, hugged him, and kissed him. So those of you who have been churched, I'll use that word, that's a real word, churched, have probably heard maybe many messages or talks on the idea that the father was a long, like he saw him a long way off. And I hope, I hope people hear that really resonates with you. Because I'm sure that there are people here who don't have fathers or mothers or whatever that are looking for them like that. And that's a powerful, powerful thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. It says, his father Solomon was moved with compassion. That's an interesting phrase because it's used elsewhere in parables. Does anybody know another parable where something was moved with compassion or even in a story about Jesus where it says he was moved with compassion. The Good Samaritan. One guy passes by, another guy passes by, the third guy was moved with compassion. So his father lavishly loves on this idiot of a son that he has. He says we must celebrate 
with feasting. I found that interesting. <clears throat> I'm getting ahead of myself. It says, because the son of mine was dead and has come back to life, he was lost and is found, and they begin to celebrate. We see celebrate again, right? Celebrating for the sheep, celebrating for the coin, celebrating for the lost son. This is all good. I hope you're not waiting for the other foot to drop where I'm like, and that's all wrong. Because this is, this is good. And then we move into the next part. Now his older son. And you guys have maybe heard this as well. His father ends up out in the field pleading with the older son, who's incensed that he's done all these things right, and that he's, he's focused correctly on this and that, and that... And then this brother comes back into life and the father chooses to celebrate when he comes back and it ends with the father saying, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. It's not hard to read these parables and understand at a glance what's going on, what's important. We see patterns going on. We see something that is lost. I'll even take a step further back. We see something that ends up noticing that something's lost. Whether it's the shepherd or the woman or the father are relatively observant. The father doesn't have to be so observant. One out of two. But you can see that they're, they're, they pay attention to those things that are lost. And then we also see that they are found in some way, and then we also see the recurring theme of these is celebration. To be celebrated. <clears throat> I've already pointed out the oddity of the math involved in some of these things. It almost seems like the celebration could sometimes be unrelated to the thing that's found. Not quite, though. So for years, for a very long time, especially in our Protestant Tradition. I'm assuming most here are Protestants, or they want to be. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, don't assume. That's exactly what I'm talking about. We have attributed the, the main character of these parables who's doing the searching as God. And some have read into the story of the thing that's lost as being sinners. And Jesus points that out in, as he's addressing his audience, and I'll get to that in a second. <clears throat> I have like 10 things I need to get to in a second. I'll, I'll get there. <clears throat> These are good allegories to make. These are good jumps to make. When we sang that song earlier that, our, that you know, God is a good, good father, it's a very real reality in Christian theology. So I don't want to downplay any of that. And all this certainly fits well with Jesus' viewing God as a good father. I do think that maybe the church, and I say the church is some big thing, has made some missteps in the past where we've really played up the, the Jewishness of maybe the elder brother and the the non-Jewishness response of the younger son and this and that. We have to be careful where we go there. I'm just going to touch on that briefly. But uh, there is such a thing as reading 
a very anti-Semitic way of seeing this older brother as one who's just this law, rule-based, whatever, and then taking that and casting that as Jews in general. And I think that completely misunderstands the idea that, some of you may not know this, Jesus was a Jew. Surprise, his disciples were also Jews. Much of the early church was Jewish. So we need to be very careful in the aspersions that we make or the things that we expand out of these allegories. It's valuable to see that there are certainly people who honor and follow God by following rules and doing the right thing and making sure that they get all this stuff. Right? That's happened. We've seen that. If you're anything like me, you've lived that your own way. But we need to be careful that we're not throwing a whole group of people under the bus. Or, Patty, I love you. You're so sweet. She's like the most encouraging person back there. Just make sure. <laughs> Ten and a half years ago, I spoke at Bethel, and she was like doing the exact same thing then. I told her tonight, I said, <laughs> I said, when I spoke at Bethel, I was way more confident and I knew way less than I do now. <laughs> And now I have very little confidence, and I know slightly more than I did then. Okay, Betty's just back there. She's doing great. So, thank you. Thank you. So, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about the purpose of a parable. We hear parable, and we might think something like Aesop's fable, or something that could be related to a story that has a moral that ties up at the end. How many people have maybe perceived parables like that? You know, just something that wraps up and we're good to go. And I have my doubts that Jesus was the type of teacher that just told these little pithy moral stories and that he would still have followers 2,000 years later. And I mean that in a serious way. We can, we can just reduce the genre of a parable down to something that's just this take-home thing. And if that's, if that's what's really going on here, I would argue that Jesus took the longest way around to getting to just saying some sort of moral thing. But I don't think Jesus was doing that, and I happen to give him a little bit more credit than maybe some people do. <clears throat> so parables, what are they? So parables kind of fit into the category of that thing that uh, like Eugene Peterson would consider a sermon. Something that it should afflict the comfortable and it should comfort the afflicted. And a parable in a very real sense is something that you hear it and if you understand what's going on in it, might leave you still chewing on it afterward. And that doesn't sound like something that just wraps up in a nice tidy little boat. <clears throat> parables call for reflection and rumination and questioning. They're often open. I think what makes Jesus' teaching and why Jesus taught parables so impactful and so long-living is because these things challenge the people that read them and ask questions about them. <clears throat> parables have a tendency to question the questioner. And I want to stress again, I'm not downplaying the allegorical reading of parables. That's perfectly fine to do. But I think you're going to be at a deficiency if you just stop there. 
and not, not ask or maybe try to understand what it would mean to the people of that time. So given this, I think that there are hints in the parables themselves that point beyond just a simple moral story. And if we can pick up on those hints and look at the parables maybe through new lenses, it will be to our benefit. You guys hanging in there? I'm not. I need water. All right. The first thing that I kind of popped out at me as I was trying to think about how I wanted to present this was that some of the hang-ups that we have are in the names that we give things. Naming and words are symbols that we use to communicate, right? Call something a chair, most people know what a chair is. If somebody had never seen a chair and you said chair, you're not communicating. I had a teacher one time that was his electronics teacher, and he, total redneck, total redneck. I mean, he would talk about when he had to go out and get ice for the ice box, and I mean redneck, like legit. <clears throat> and one day, and when he'd talk, he'd spit like crazy. <laughs> but he had, he would talk about how he explained his electronic concepts to the point where he would teach math, and people that weren't taking electronics would come listen to his his math class, because he could kind of dilute these things in a way that people understood. And his, his argument was, and he would, use, he would stop, and he would almost change like to a different person, and he would be able to like use the largest $5 words you've ever heard. And he would go on for a while, and then he would stop. And he's like, if you didn't understand a thing I said, I'm not communicating properly. And that's when I learned it was okay to be a redneck. So we use words and we use symbols, okay? We name things. What's the first job that Adam had to do in Genesis? What did he do? Lined up and he named the animals, right? Now, I don't think it's because God's not creative enough to think up names. What I think is actually going on is that that's a part of how we make up the world that we live in. We give something a name. We assign a symbol to it. And sometimes those symbols and names change over time, and they should. But we use words and symbols to communicate and share information, and we, we can't really even communicate or share information without them. I'm speaking specifically of like verbal things, but there's other things, ways that we communicate with each other. I remember when I was a little boy and I used to goof off in church, my grandma had a way of communicating to me that didn't require words. <clears throat> she never swore, but she spit and the grass turned brown. <laughs> and here's the interesting thing about symbols or about naming things. And this is kind of where I want to start drawing stuff out. So I hope you guys are following me. But symbols and naming have kind of a, there's two sides of that coin. One is that when we name something, we reveal a part of that thing. And by giving something the name, sometimes we often re conceal a part of that thing. Okay, so kind of keep that in mind, the revealing and concealing part of what it means to give a name to something. Because sometimes when we give a name to something, we've kind of front-loaded that word with ideas and images of what that should be. And I'll, 
hopefully tie that into what I want to say here. <clears throat> Sometimes, though, we can be very reductive in how we use names. In the sense that we can assume that just because we have named something, that thing now is that. Sounds really confusing, I know. But that we somehow think that if we've named something, we've exhausted the reality of that thing. I'm here to tell you that that's not how language works, nor is it how we function with language. And people misuse that all the time. So what I want to do is maybe look at this through the lens of not being intentionally reductive with our words. Luke chapter 15, with all these parables, we have to ask, who is Jesus talking to? And what's it start out? Do you guys remember? kind of glossed over because I want to make this point later. That's me cheating. <clears throat> yes, you got it. Luke 15 opens with Jesus confronting the Pharisees and the tax collectors. Or, I'm sorry, the Pharisees and the scribes. He's referring to them in these parables. Now, Matthew has a very similar parable uh, with the, uh, the lost sheep, but he's actually, in that context, Jesus is referring to his disciples. And it's interesting, if you look at the context between those two, you can pull out uh, how, how it's being used and the effect that it has on the telling. So here we see Jesus confronting the Pharisees and the keepers of the law, the scribes. And their grumbling is the fact that he's eating with sinners and all sorts of bad people. <clears throat> so when I think of Jesus' audience, it made me think, a couple chapters back in Luke, Luke chapter 8, where he's talking to his disciples. So we switched, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he had just told a parable, and they're really confused, which is a recurring theme with the disciples. They were really confused. Like, I don't think it's so much the disciples were completely dense as it is that we should also associate with the disciples. Where he said, you have been given the mysteries of God's kingdom, but these mysteries come to everyone else in parables, so that when they see, they can't see, and when they hear, they can't understand. Now, that can sound really confusing. Let's say your day job is to go around and be a, you know, itinerant preacher, truth preach to people, and then you tell your guys, well, I speak in parables so that they won't understand. That seems like an odd thing to do for somebody who's sharing truth with people. There's also an allusion to the Old Testament in there that can be unpacked. I'm going to skip over it. Cole can talk about it next week. <clears throat> but I'm not sure that Jesus is being tricky or secretive or anything like that. The early church certainly made its stance known on this whole secret knowledge thing. You guys ever heard of Gnosticism? That, that, the, that truth was somehow a secret that only a few people had? And, that, you know, that, and I really don't think that that's what Jesus was doing. What I think Jesus is doing is, one, he was talking to who in Luke's gospel is his detractors. And I think he's sharing with them in a way that they're just not going to understand anyways. Have you ever had a conversation where somebody's mind has already been made up and you've spent your spinning your wheels trying to get them to see it from your perspective? I feel like when Jesus talks of mysteries and stuff like that, the mystery isn't something that's wrapped up and, you know, hidden away. The mystery is in the person 
who's not open to receiving what it is that's going on there. So I think Jesus is doing in these parables and a lot of his parables is at a cursory view, this seems to be some sort of buttoned up moral story or something to incense his detractors. And I think the, the, the genius of Jesus' teaching isn't necessarily that he's sharing information that we don't know, but that <clears throat> Jesus is challenging the things that we think we know for sure. Does that make sense? Like he's kind of turning things upside down and unsettling. I think we have some good hints for that happening in here. And I want to go back to kind of how the, the center of Jesus' theology, which was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. <clears throat> this is what Cole, Cole would call the, the dog butt hook of Jesus' hermeneutic, of how he read the Bible. And that's a reference to those coat hangers that are like, look like a dog butt, and you hang it over the tail or whatever. I will never forget that. That is a visual image always associated with my Bible now. <laughs> so an interesting thing is I was trying to think about this hermeneutic and how we can apply it to parables and see what's going on or maybe have a better understanding of it. And I realized, well, how do we define love here? And you may be surprised that the Bible actually never defines love. It talks about love. It talks about the multiple faceted things of love. It talks about, it gets into it and all this other stuff, but it, in and of itself, it doesn't define it, except for if you look at like where John says, God is love. Well, that helps. We've just now opened the word up to something even bigger. So I'm going to steal another theologian's definition of love, and I'm hoping that we can apply that. And it's Thomas J. Ord. He's kind of built a theology around love. And he says, to love is to act intentionally, in sympathetic, empathetic response to God and others to promote overall well-being. That seemed to cover all the corners of love as I understand it here. So I'm going to read that again because it's kind of a long sentence there. It says, to love is to act intentionally, so with purpose, in sympathetic or slash empathetic response to God and others to promote overall well-being. I think that's a well-rounded definition of love. And since he's a theologian and gets paid for coming up with stuff like this, <laughs> we're going to go with it. So now, let's go back to the parables that we just covered. And you're like, oh, we just covered this. Well, we're going to do it again. First of all, there's how many parables in this little chunk? Three. Right? Have you guys ever heard of the folkloric rule of three? No, I'm going to say no, since that was a no. I, I recognize that look. When I ask my kids, what happened? That was a look I get back. <clears throat> so the rule of three, we see it in a lot of stories. Um, like, for instance, uh, Cinderella and the two stepsisters, right? Or the three little pigs. Right, very unkosher story here. 
But what we typically see in, in the folkloric rule of three, and I think what Jesus is doing here, is we have two stories that set up. You kind of get going on this thing, and you kind of have it figured out, and then the third one is kind of the thing that throws you for a loop a little bit. This is why I think allegory is good for these, but we have to take a step beyond that when we're reading it. <clears throat> so we have the rule of three, and one of the things that we can see in the first one is that the math changes from 100 to 10 to 1, 2. Some people are saying 2. Very good. You're thinking ahead here. 10, or 100, 10, and 1 or 2, depending on how you view the story. And the things go in value differently, too. You have the lost sheep, which I think if you had 99 sheep, or if you had 100 sheep and you lost one, that's not necessarily going to be like a big hit on your bottom line. So the value of that lost sheep, eh, you know. The lost coin is one out of ten, and I said it was about a day's wage, which would probably, you'd probably feel that more maybe, right? <clears throat> and then we have the lost, dot, dot, dot. This is where all the music gets really dark and mysterious, if I had my own soundtrack. <laughs> one thing I'd like to point out, and I'm doing this now, not at the end as we talk about this, but after the first parable, Jesus says, he sums it up by saying, this is like when somebody repents and something, something. And the second parable, this is like when somebody, something, something. And the third parable, Jesus doesn't say anything like that. I think that's a hint that tells us that something different is going on here. So we're seeing something that diverged from the norm. We see, we see two parables talking about something being lost that's a value. The value is increasing. We see something that's talking about a search and going out and finding. And furthermore, we're seeing celebration and all this other stuff. And then we get to this third parable of the prodigal son. And I did that whole naming thing where we talked about names concealing and revealing different aspects. I think when we say this is about the prodigal son, what ends up happening is our brains then attach to the prodigal son and completely miss the point that he's only in it for half of the story. There's more going on here than just some prodigal son. You guys follow me? So let's read it again. <clears throat> Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. Stop. You're a first century good Jewish person. You study the Torah. You study the history of your people. And when you hear a certain man had two sons, your brain does something that you can't even control. It jumps immediately to two sons that we see repeated in the Old Testament, like Cain and Abel, like Ishmael and Isaac, like Esau and Jacob, like Manasseh and Ephraim, or however you say his name, Ephraim, I don't know. When you hear a certain man had two sons, that's priming the pump for something that's culturally important to your people, and your mind is going to drift a little bit to understanding that which son is the one that you should associate with. Pull out your biblical knowledge here. Of these sons I mentioned, which are the ones that get the blessing? Huh? The youngest one. 
So Jesus is already primed the pump. That would be like if I started... <gasps> Cole, you never preach from up here. You should. It's very... I don't know. It's cool. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> Squirrel. <clears throat> if I started a speech to you guys and I said, I have a dream that someday... Where are you guys jumping to right now? I'll give you a hint. It takes place on Monday. (laughs) Martin Luther King Jr., right? And if I was like super old and I started a a speech with four score and seven years ago, you guys would jump to Abe Lincoln. Those are loaded terms. This, a certain man had two sons, is loaded with history that first century Jews would have picked up on right away. That's where I say that the names that we give things, the naming of things, can reveal and conceal. You can write a lot on a name if you attach it with something that has meaning to people. This story starts with a certain man had two sons. And then it goes into, the younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. I want to stop there because some commentators really want to, commentators, is that a word, commentator? It sounds like a redneck thing. We got the good taters, we got the calm taters. <laughs> I was saying that out loud and I realized that's not right, but it is, I guess. So, the commentator, sorry. Hope you hear that for the rest of your life every time commentator comes up. Commentators will sometimes put in there that this was like akin to telling the father he wanted him to die. Have you guys heard that? Have you guys heard that when the younger son asks his father for this, that it's, it's the equivalent of asking for his, like wishing him dead. And I've heard that. Turns out it's not necessarily that way historically. Some people have played that up. And that kind of a little bit, I just want to, a little bit, goes back to some of the anti-Semitism that we see and how these things are presented. That Judaism was such a harsh, strict religion that if a child asked for the, it meant that the child wanted you dead. And I don't, I don't see the God of the Old Testament being like that. And I don't see the people that love the God of the Old Testament being like that. And I think we need to be careful, once again, how we cast these things. Okay? Now, it was a jerk thing to do. I'll clarify that. It doesn't mean you can't say, you're a jerk. And the son is being a jerk. He's saying to his dad, I want my part of the inheritance. And it's really interesting, too, because then it goes on and says, then the father divided his estate between them. Um, Other translations will say property and stuff like that. What's really interesting is that Greek word in there is uh, bios, which is the word that we use for biography or biology, which means related to life. It literally means the father divided his life or divided the life. So you can see that this is a serious thing that's being asked for. What also interests me about this is the father could have just said no. Some commentators, once again, would like to say that the father was required to do this or whatever, and that's not necessarily the case. Because the father also breaks rules here too. One, he gives in to the younger, brash, idiot son. And furthermore... He divides it in half. 
when social convention at that time would have been you give two-thirds to the older brother and the remains to the younger brother. But he split it in half between his two sons. I know I say that like I'm running somewhere with that point. I'm not. That's just really interesting. <clears throat> so it says, soon afterward, the younger son gathered everything together and took a trip to land far away. There he wasted his wealth through extravagant living. <clears throat> it's kind of interesting when you think back to what I just said about uh, the father dividing the life, and then you, you read the son says that he wasted it through, he wasted the life through extravagant living. That's, boy, how many people have wasted life through extravagant living? So, it then reads, when he used up his resources, a severe food shortage arose in that country, and he began to be in need. He hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, sent him to feed the pigs. He longed to fill, eat his fill from the pig's aid, but no one gave him anything. I've already pointed out that there's interesting factors involved here. It's not that he just spent all of his money, but he also happened to spend all of his money and then run straight into a famine. And not that he just spent all his money, ran straight into a famine, but that nobody would give him anything. He's in a land that doesn't seem to have any sort of charity. Some of this is the younger son's fault, and some of this is just the way life is. Certainly could have been mitigated by the younger son making wiser choices, but he did not. So then it says, when he came to his senses, verse 17, when he came to his senses, I find that interesting. Because what follows after that says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food? But I'm starving to death. Verse 18, I will get up and I'll go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Verse 19, I no longer deserve to be called your son. Take me on as one of your hired hands. So he got up and went to his father. Now, we need to be very careful here, and this is where I see that if we name something a certain way, it can reveal and it can conceal. And I think something's being concealed when we automatically jump to repentance. And mind you, we've been primed to jump to repentance because the first two parables ended that way. But we can see there's already hints coming that change how we perceive that. The son, this whole entire time, thinks in terms of what? Does anybody know? Himself. And... Stuff. The younger son here is complaining because he is hungry. There's nothing in here that shows <clears throat> that he's concerned about the relationship with his father or the relationship with his family or any of the damage that he's done. I'm not saying that there isn't. I'm just saying that if you look at the way he's wording it, he's, you ever get in trouble? Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to jump this. I've been in trouble a lot, so I'm really good at this sort of stuff. And you've been sent somewhere like to think it out or you're in timeout or you know, you know you're going to pay for trouble that you've committed, right? You ever sit there and start thinking up what you're going to say? Well, if this hadn't happened or if this thing had that or that, da, 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 blah, 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 I'm really good at coming up with reasons why technically this wasn't my fault. And guess what I found out? It's hereditary. My kids have it too. <laughs> They're very good at thinking up reasons why it was perfectly legitimate to hit a brother in the head with a hammer. 
the sin, and I'm using that phrase maybe in a bigger term, because what we're seeing, if you go back and you look at the lost sheep, it wasn't necessarily a value thing that made that thing lost. As it was, there was 99 that made it incomplete. And if you go to the lost coin, you have 10. There's been given a number, one missing. It's not complete. Likewise, you have a father with two sons, and one is just taken off. Their family is now not complete. We have to be careful when we jump in with a word that doesn't even exist in this phrase, which is repentance. And it's important, and I really certainly hope people don't take me as putting that part of it down. But the son, and this is his ongoing sin, is that he's thinking of his father in terms economic. He's thinking economically, a this for that. I do this, you get that, right? You know, all this other stuff. He's thinking in these terms rather than thinking relationally. And we know that because he already, the whole thing that started was, Father, I want my half of the inheritance. I want my money. He seems to be acting out of self-preservation. He's hungry. He wants food. That's the game. And so he thinks up this thing that he's going to, and he's going to present his father to himself as, to his father as a hired hand. Also, still thinking economically in regards to his father. He also phrases it, he says, I have sinned against heaven and against you. This is an interesting phrasing, and I think Jesus put that in there, because if you want to look at loaded phrases, this phrase is loaded, because another person in the Bible that says a phrase very similar to this is Exodus 10, 16, what character said, I have sinned against God and you, or something very similar to that? Pharaoh. When Moses and Aaron come back to Pharaoh, Pharaoh responds, you know, in one of those times, I, this, like he feels bad. Also, I'd like to see, show that the son, what he's doing here, is look how he phrases things. He's referring to him as Father. He's prepping the familial approach. I, your son. He's reminding the father that he's his son. There's lots of things going on that make this very complex. I don't know how many people around here have relationships that are very complex. Think of your family. How hard is it to talk to your family? Is it hard? Because like all my family's literally here tonight. It's hard. I had to take out all my mother-in-law jokes. I had to take out all my mom jokes. So then the son, yeah, I can picture him, if, you, if I was him and I have been him, I can picture him returning as he's walking back, he's thinking through all these things he's going to tell his father. Father, I've seen, you know, you're going it over in his head, he's really playing it out. And then the story moves on, he says, while he was still a long way off, that's probably one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I get choked up just thinking about it. What we wouldn't give to have a father who's looking for us always on the horizon. <clears throat> he was still a long way off. And his father saw him and was moved with compassion. His father ran to him, hugged him, 
and kissed him. If there's something that this father seems to be doing, as well as the woman in the previous parable and the shepherd before then, is that the father doesn't withhold anything that's his to give. And the father gave his inheritance because the inheritance didn't matter to the father. What mattered to the father was the son. And what I see here is the father running, hugging, kissing, all these great expressions toward a child that's hurt him, I would assume. And yet he's still giving the child everything that he has. So then the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. <clears throat> now I'll stop right there. The son stops. Do you anybody remember what he was practicing in his head before he went back? Let me be one of your hired servants. Now we can read into that. Be careful with that. But it's interesting that the son holds that line back when he sees his father glowingly loving on him and caring for him. All of a sudden, that seems to be removed from the sentence. I don't know what's going on there. I think maybe the son's still thinking economically in regards to his father. But then also, what could have happened is he says that line, and then it says, but the father said to his servants. I can picture almost the father cutting him off and saying, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Fetch the fat calf and slaughter it. We must celebrate with feasting because the son of mine was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. We're back to celebration again. Even maybe factoring in a little bit more of the character of this younger son. And then, this is where the music, if we're watching like a Hallmark movie, it would get very dark and scary. It says, now his older son was in the field. That's where it jumps to. <clears throat> Why was the older son in the field? We don't know. And this is the part of a parable where I think that lots of strands of this parable are opened up. That they ask you to question what's going on here or why this is going on. It says, now his older son was in the field. That's all it says. Was he there on his own? Was he like out there working and everybody came in to party and he didn't know about it? Was he not invited? Did the father not send for him? Or was the servant supposed to? And then he got distracted by, you know, women or something. I don't know. <laughs> Given what we know of this household so far, I'm not surprised. This is the beauty of the parable, though, is to ask these questions and not just settle, but to keep asking, kind of forever. We don't know why he was out in the field, and we don't know why he wasn't fetched, if you will. So it's coming in from the field. He approached the house, and he heard music and dancing. That's got to be a party that's off the hook. If you show up and you hear it before you see it, that is a loud party. Do you know how crazy it has to be to hear dancing? 
And he called one of his servants and asked what was going on. He didn't call his father, did he? He called one of his servants to ask what was going on. Am I reading into that? No, I'm just saying, this is the point of the parable. Have you ever been in a situation where you've not been called to the party? Have you ever been out? Have you ever responded unkindly to being left out? So the servant replied, your brother has arrived. And your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he received his son back safe and sound. I imagine that the servant said it like that, like he's a completely oblivious servant, has no idea about all the history of this family relation stuff. It says the older son was furious and didn't want to enter in. But his father came out and begged him. Begged him is a very interesting thing in the Greek, and I only say this because I can depend on other people that hopefully know it better than I do. But the father's counseling his son, his older son, out in the field, away from the party. And the word he's using there is paraclete. Or something related to it. Like I said, I don't know Greek. Paraclete. Does anybody know what else we use that word for? The Holy Spirit. He's advocating. He's counseling. He's comforting his oldest son. He's Begging him. The older son answers his father. He says, look, I've served you all these years. Now, here's an interesting thing. We have the younger son who's appealing to his father because I'm your son and because this and this and this. And then the older son responds, how? I have served you all these years. He doesn't go home. He doesn't go to his father. He goes to his house. Anybody seen a family so dysfunctional as maybe what's going on here? Anybody lived in a family so dysfunctional as maybe what's going on here? <laughs> Do you understand what I say? When we give names to things and we use that to jump to whatever, that those things can reveal and conceal important facts about what's going on. And that's why I'm stressing, hopefully, that it's important to keep these parables open. Because we are these parables. These parables make up who we are. Certainly if you're a Christian. But everybody should understand kind of the feelings that are going on here. So the son speaking clinically to his father, which tells me that the older son has also only maybe related to his father economically. I serve this. I do this. I should get this. I'm good. I should get good response from you. You should have a party for me. Not for the idiot. Doesn't it seem like in life, though, the idiots get all the parties? I'm just going to throw that out there, and I'm done with that. It says, you never given me as much as a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. It doesn't sound to me like the father is the type of father to withhold that from everything that I'm seeing in this. It says, but when this son of yours returned, oh, He's not saying his brother. No, who is that? That's this son of yours. Once again, we're speaking economically. We're speaking in a very calculated fashion. After gobbling up your estate on prostitutes, I love that the older brother just reads into whatever extravagant living he did over there. It obviously had to do with whoring around. Yeah, I said whoring around in church, kid. <clears throat> 
It says, you slaughtered the fatted calf for him. Then the father said, I'm going to stop here. I know I'm stopping a lot, but I hope you guys see what I'm trying to do. The father, then the father said. Now, when the younger son came back, how did the father respond to the younger son? Physical. Hugging. Kissing. Touching. He cut the son off from talking. He didn't even say anything to him in the, in the parable. What's he do? He turns to his servants and he says, go do this. Get this. Get this. Here we have a father that relates to one son in this very physical way, and yet the older son, it's interesting to me that the father seems to want to be more conversational with him. Now, some of you are looking at me like, well, what's that mean? I don't know. That's the point of the parable. I just find it interesting. I couldn't find any commentary that, like, explained that to me. And maybe I'm reading into it. I could be, but it's very interesting to me that the, the younger son gets this physical attention from his father, and the older son gets more of an intellectual conversation. And I know, it might not be anything, I, I have four sons. I relate to each of my sons differently. I have one son that I have to be very stern with if he's done something wrong so that he'll understand that I'm very serious and that he's done something wrong. I have another son that if I looked at him the same way, he would just cry and run away. (laughs) Each child is different. These relationships in this family and in our families and in our church and in our community are complicated. Everybody here has been born in the middle of things. We are born in the middle of things. We grow up and live and are shaped in the middle of things. And when we die, we die in the middle of things. The Latin phrase is in media res, in the middle of things. I'm assuming that's what that is. In media things. All right. <laughs> Once again, I don't speak Latin. So his father says to him. So the father has nothing to give him in any sort of like material sense so much as to the elder son, he gives him words. And he says, son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I think what's going on here is the father is excited. Even if I'm trying to make the younger son sound like he's still wayward or whatever, the foundness comes into the family is complete again, even given maybe the brokenness of the relationships there. It's also interesting, too, the father refers to the older son. He's talking to him. Most texts say son, but he actually uses the Greek word for child. I picture a father that's pleading with his child. And that same word child is the same one that Mary and Joseph used toward Jesus after he got lost at the temple when he was 12. Child. It's a term of endearment, of concern, of love, of passion. Child. So both sons are guilty of seeing their relationship with their father economically reduced to just things or this or that. The father, however, as well as the woman, as well as the shepherd, doesn't respond economically to any of the things that are lost. The father responds in what I will call agopic response. 
The Father responds in love. A love that is mediated maybe through physical things, maybe through touch and through talk or whatever, but love nonetheless. An uncalculating, non-economic way of relating to his sons. And I see a father, the story ends, breaks my heart before you had lost, found, party, lost, found, party, lost, found, two people standing out in a field away from the party, and a father that I just feel is imploring to restore his home, his relationship with both his sons. I see a father out in the field who may not have realized that he didn't just have one lost son. How many lost sons does the father have? Two. Amy Jill Levine, who's a Jewish scholar, writes, unlike sheep and coins, returning a lost son is a much more difficult task. We can go get the sheep and bring the sheep back. We can go find the coin and add it to the rest of the coins. Has anybody tried to make a child or relative or anybody that you have a complicated relationship with do something and have it just work out perfectly? This is far more complicated. And I think the point of this parable, when you look at all the intertwining relationships and the fact that everybody has some sort of thing on their shoulder, that it sounds very much like real life to me. It's not neatly tied up in a bow. It's difficult and it disturbs me. I don't like that it's so upsetting. Guess what? I just figured out what a parable does. Amy Gillivine writes, if we hold in abeyance, at least for the moment, the rush to read repenting and forgiving into the parable, then it does something more profound than repeat well-known messages. It provokes us with simple exhortations. Recognize that one, you have lost maybe right in your own household. Do whatever it takes to find the loss and then celebrate with others, both so that you can share the joy and so that others will help prevent the recovered from ever being lost again. Don't wait until you receive an apology. You may never get one. Don't wait until you can muster the ability to forgive. You may never find it. Don't stew in your sense of being ignored. For there is nothing that can be done to retrieve the past. <clears throat> Sometimes when we name things, we obscure part of whatever that thing is that we're naming. By focusing on the prodigal, we have a tendency to miss what the father and the elder son are doing. We've reduced it. We've been reductive with the story. The shepherd, the woman, and the father are the characters who do not see economically regarding their things that they've lost. All of them act in disregard for the cost, as though the cost of the item they were looking for isn't only valuable, it's even more than that, it's priceless. You go from 100 to 10 to 2, some worth, a little bit more worth, priceless. You guys understand what I'm saying about the conceal and reveal part of this? Can you see how we apply these things? I'm almost done here. We apply the whole naming thing, the symbol thing, all the time in life. It's how we make up, how we understand the world. 
But where I think we can falter is when we apply something with the, the purpose of reducing it to that thing. And we do it all the time. Somebody is just a conservative, or somebody is just a liberal. Or somebody more interesting right now going on in this community is there's a lot of talk in the paper and on the street about homelessness. Homelessness is something that we're naming today. And that's good. That's a good thing to be named. Right? The needy. Terrible name, but that's something that we're naming, right? But if we treat homelessness and neediness as the thing in and of itself, we completely disregard what it is that makes people homeless and what it is that makes people needy. I think if we look at this parable, we can see that they're actually missing out on being part of a whole. And that's a lot harder problem to solve than just throwing stuff at somebody. Scarves and hats, those are good, valuable things, and I'd love to see that continue. But scarves and hats don't solve the problem of why the person's there. Furthermore, the person might be, like the younger son, very difficult to get along with. They might be using you. They might be toying with you. They might be pulling on those heartstrings to make it, let your heart be pulled. You don't have to be foolish you don't have to be stupid about how you help other people. But we don't have to be misers with our love either. We don't have to refrain from caring. We don't have to just let these things go like that. You can still be wise. Jesus named things. He called people out. It's not that we have to be spineless. We have to recognize that just like this parable, all of this stuff comes bundled up and is intertwined in what a person is. To tease out one part of that and say, homeless, or conservative, or liberal, or gay, or whatever you want to call the person so that you reduce them to a thing, you need to realize that people are multifaceted, just like a parable has multiple ways of looking at it. And each lens shines different light on a different thing. Am I making sense? Yeah, sorry, okay. Go back. A father had two sons now. So, I hope this made sense to you guys. I hope I was able to tease these things out. I feel like I had no coherent way of bringing this together. But if there's anything I would love to see people do is read their scripture in a non-reductive, moralizing, just wrapped up with a bow way and see that Jesus is speaking to things that, surprise, surprise, affect us every single day in the relationships we have with each other. Okay? And that we are built and made and seem to be designed to be part of a whole. And we are surrounded by people that have either left that or have been excluded from it and if we can use things like this to remind us how to respond to people who have left that network of things in their life, that we can be wise about how we approach it, that we can, we can lead with agape and not with economic calculation, that maybe, maybe we can make a difference. Maybe we can be what it means to, to claim that Jesus is Lord, which isn't just some sort of you know, magical spell that we say and we're okay and we get our, you know, pass, go, collect $200, don't go to hell sort of thing. 
but that we declare Jesus as Lord in the sense that the thing that was his passion, which is agopic, non-reductive, non-calculating, non-economic love, and we say that that is our love as well, and that's the love that we want to mediate and express to the people all around us, including the younger jerk sons and the lost elder sons. So that's, that's all I got, Cole. I'm, I'm good. You're walking up, literally walking up. Okay. I can You go get your guitar. All right. While Cole gets his guitar on, let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that there is such a thing as agape love. We thank you that there is such a thing as being part of a whole. God, we are all here born in the middle of things. We are all in media res. And I just pray, God, that we can be open to seeing the many intricate details that make up all of us as who we are. That we would not be reductive, that we wouldn't be just pushing something into a mold so that we can disregard it. God, I pray that we can recognize the power of naming something. That when we name something, that it, it can reveal something and conceal something, both in the names we give to people and the names that are given to us. And I just pray, God, that we can use this thing to not, to not despise, to not reject, to not push away, but that, Father, we could use these things to open up. That we can be changed from the inside out. That we can be like our good, good Father. God, work on our hearts. Work in this messy, messy thing we call a life. Work in these relationships that are broken. Help us to share love and not hold on to it. God, we just pray that we can live a parable life. One that's complicated and requires thought, discernment, and prayer. God, lead us to live a life that you've called us to. God, use this church, use this community here to bring people into a whole. God, we may never solve the homelessness thing or the needy thing or whatever you want to call it, but we, we can be a part of solving the whole thing. That people are outside when they need to be inside. God, give us the heart, the passion, the desire, and the ability to build a community around your love so that we can mediate your love in and around and all over this community as well. Thank you for your, your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.